Turret. This is Viewpoint with attorney and author Chuck Chris Meyer. Viewpoint is a one-hour talk show confronting the issues of America's heart and home. And now with today's edition of Viewpoint, here is Chuck Chris Meyer. About 4,000 years ago, God spoke to a man by the name of Abraham. His name then was called Abram. He called him to leave Ur of the Chaldees, and in his trek, leaving Ur of the Chaldees in his father's house, he ended up in a place called, well, that we called, we call Israel, the land of promise. It became the land of promise because God saw that Abraham was a man of deep faith, that Abraham would trust him. In fact, God said that I I know him, that he will obey my voice and teach his children and offspring to do the same. So God changed his name to Abraham which included part of the name of God himself. Well, God said to Abram, look, I want you to lift up your eyes, and I want you to look around, and I want you to see all this land that is before you in what was then called the land of Canaan. He said, I give it all to you. I give it all to you, and then by implication to your sons, your grandsons, and then to all of those who follow them. It was, you might call, the ultimate leasehold of all time, because God called it his land. He still says it's his land, but he gave Abraham and his seed, all of his descendants after him, the opportunity to have dominion or sovereignty under God's sovereignty over that land. Well, since then, even Mark Twain said that the land of Israel had been a real serious problem. In fact, when he went over there in the 1800s, he discovered it was just a bunch of marshland. He couldn't believe that there would be any promise there. On the other hand, it has now become a land flowing with milk and honey, so to speak. And just as God said, dramatic things have taken place there. It has become one of the leading economies of the world with one of the leading armies of the world. And together with the United States of America, is seen as the greatest nation to inhibit the move to our global order or one world order. Isn't that fascinating? Well, today we're going to take a journey to Israel. That's right. We're going to take a journey with our uh, new friend, Charles Dyer. He goes by my name. I don't know why he thought he had the privilege to use my name on his book, but he did. And he just discovered what his name actually means. But he's joining us here with his book, Experiencing the Land of the Book, because he has been to Israel over 100 times. So, Charlie, as a good trial lawyer, I believe just giving that information that you've been there over 100 times qualifies you as somewhat of an expert witness. What say you? Well, I hope so. And uh, I I would say I also did my master's and doctoral uh, the studies focused on the historical geography of Israel and the Bible uh, that, that probably uh, biblically qual- uh, qualify me even more than those trips. But uh, between the trips and the Bible, uh, it's something I love to talk about. Well, given that you, you are that expert, can you tell us about the amount of corruption? Uh, the uh, the Hill of Evil Council or the... Uh, well, the, he- know, the Hill of Evil Council, Yeah. That's a pretty right pretty significant thing, isn't it? It really is. You, know, you, you go back, in fact, it's amazing. Jerusalem 
uh, it's the place we always think of, you know, with God, and yet uh, there's amazing things that happen. You know, Solomon set up uh, idol worship just outside Jerusalem on that, uh, the, the southern end of the uh, Mount of Olives, mm-hmm. and uh, it ended up bringing, you know, bringing about ultimately the division of the kingdom and then uh, the temporary destruction of the kingdom when that idolatry became like cancer and just ate through the entire nation. God had to take him away and put him in Babylon to uh, get rid of that before he could bring him back. Well, even Wikipedia, in all of its great wisdom, talks about the south of the Mount of Corruption. And uh, indeed, I remember last time I was there speaking to a group. Uh, it was fascinating to talk about the Mount of Corruption or Evil Council. And uh, there is even some speculation that uh, the Sanhedrin met initially on the hill of evil, evil council to condemn Jesus. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Uh, and you, you take it from his day to our day that that hill on the far south is the uh, is where the UN High Commissioner's office now is. Now, isn't that and interesting? The, the UN yeah, now commandeers over Israel on the hill of evil council or amount of corruption. Yeah, they, they they delight in pointing that out, at least uh, the, the Israelis that I know, uh, because that it, it epitomizes their feeling on the U.N. and some of the decisions the U.N.'s made regarding uh, Israel and its existence. Well, even as we speak now, there are virtual political and legal wars going on in Israel. Benjamin Netanyahu now has become the new prime minister. I think it's his sixth term now. Uh, that he is going to uh, be carrying out and uh, is saying, you know, we need to correct the imbalances of uh, the legal system here, which have given complete superiority to the Supreme Court, even over the Knesset. We're going to have to correct that. And now, just as here in America, the Democrats cried, you're the enemy of democracy. Now, those in the Knesset are screaming to Benjamin Netanyahu, you're destroying democracy in Israel. What do you make of that? Uh, to me, it's the ultimate lie. You know, the, the Supreme Court justices in Israel, uh, they're nine, a nine-member committee that appoints who the justices can be or qualifies them. Mm-hmm. Only four are from the Knesset. Five are either the Supreme Court judges themselves or the uh, Bar Association. So you actually have judges being appointed and uh, the Knesset can get voted down and usually is voted down if they have any objections. So uh, in our government, you know, we have checks and balances. Right. They're totally missing from Israel, and that's what they're asking to put in. And uh, and to uh, call that uh, perversion of democracy, it's, uh, it's a, a definition of democracy that uh, is absent from most of us and most of our understanding. Well, what but the uh, what the liberals in, the in in Israel are doing is exactly what's happened here in our country, and they're decrying the removal of their source of power uh, through the Supreme Court to basically uh, do the bidding of the uh, politically liberal in Israel. That's right. They, they, they're getting rid of, well, what Netanyahu wants to do is get rid of the ability of the courts to uh, overthrow laws and rewrite their own laws and establish their own understanding, which uh, just neuters the Knesset. And mm-hmm. uh, so hopefully this is going to pass. They're going to put in those checks and balances, and it won't spell the end of democracy. It'll actually be a, a, flo- a flourishing of that democracy there in Israel. Well, we've laid a little bit of a foundation here, very interesting foundation, especially talking about the Hill of Corruption or Evil Council, Mount of Corruption. 
And uh, I'm sure that there are a number of places there, as you have spent so much time there in Israel, that have really attracted your attention. And there are several that uh, certainly have attracted mine. Uh, Perhaps we can focus on some of those as we uh, take our journey experiencing the land of the book. So what caused you actually to write this book then? Was it all your experiences? Yeah, after leading all those trips, I recognized that I've been able to take several thousand people to Israel, but there are, there are tens of thousands who are never going to get there. They can't mm-hmm. afford to go. Right. They can't help themselves physically. I want them to experience what I experienced, and that is the life-changing impact that Israel can make on a person's life. Well, we want to talk about that and uh, the impact of these locations. It's not just about geography, friends. There's something much more special about the land It's the land of promise, yes, but it's also the land that God says, it's my land. We'll be right back. Once upon a time, children could pray and read their Bibles in school. Divorces were practically unknown, as was child abuse. In our once great America, virginity and chastity were popular virtues, and homosexuality was an abomination. So what happened in just one generation? Hi, I'm Chuck Chris Meyer, and I urge you to join me daily on Viewpoint, where we discuss the most challenging issues touching our hearts and homes. Could America's moral slide relate to the Fourth Commandment? Listen to Viewpoint on this radio station or anytime at saveus.org. Welcome back to Viewpoint. I'm Chuck Chrismeyer. Today we're walking through the land of the book with our special guest, Charles Dyer, known as Charlie Dyer. And uh, his book is a $25 book. It's yours for $22 on our website, saveus.org. It's going to be a fascinating read for you. If you've never been to Israel and don't think you'll ever get there, you just might want to go there via this uh, traveling experience through the land of the book. It's yours on our website for your gift of save uh, $22 or more to Save America Ministries, P.O. Box 70879, Richmond, Virginia, 23255. Writing a check at $5 for postage and handling. Uh, You can call us 1-800-SAVE-USA. As I said, uh, go to the website, saveus.org. Now, Jesus was born in Nazareth, but Nazareth isn't a very peaceful place today. Jesus, well, actually, Jesus lived in Nazareth, but he was born in Bethlehem, and that's not a very peaceful place today. In fact, Christians are almost given the left foot of fellowship in both places. What is going on? How could God call this his land when the two places where Jesus got his start are in such seeming rabid animosity toward the followers of of Yeshua or Jesus. Charlie, what's your answer? Uh, I think it's Satan, and Satan's fingerprints are all over so much of the conflict that takes place there. Since God chose that land and God sent his son to that land, Satan has done everything he can to try and disrupt and destroy uh, the uh, the work that God has, has not only done in the past but is going to do in the future there. Uh, I, I do try and take people. My, the bus driver I've used for 26 years lives in Nazareth. And I, I tell the people, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, Munir does. He's, <laughs> he's our driver, and Jesus did. So uh, we know two good things that came out of Nazareth, but they're a minority. Uh, yeah. The sad part is the Christians there are in a small minority, and the same in Bethlehem, and are persecuted actively. Well, interestingly, uh, so Jesus got the left foot of fellowship uh, right there early on in his ministry at Nazareth. 
he was speaking in their synagogue, and he opened the book as was written. Uh, today, as all of this experienced and being revealed in your eyes, they wondered at the gracious words that proceeded out of his mouth, and then... Shortly thereafter, he said, all of this is being fulfilled, just as was spoken by the prophets. And all of a sudden, their their attitudes changed. They picked him up and went to throw him over a hill right there in Nazareth, a place where he he grew up. Yeah, and and uh, that, that kind of a response. And again, I think it's God's message generates that kind of a response. Uh, people accept him, or when they reject, they, uh, the anger and... Um, animosity is just incredible. Uh, and uh, we're still seeing that today in the Holy Land. Well, my wife and I got some of the same treatment when we were there in Nazareth. And uh, we were uh, walking up the streets there, and we took a few pictures, and people started throwing gourds at us. And uh, oh. we were told we were told then by the natives that uh, they feel that if you're taking pictures, you're taking away their soul. So they threw gourds at us. So that was that was one of our experiences there in Nazareth. Uh, yet Jesus was called a Nazarene. Go figure. Yeah, it's uh, that's one of the things that I love about taking people on trips, and you've you've experienced it. You just mentioned it. Uh, what their what their mind's eye is of the Bible uh, changes radically when they get there and realize what it's like, and then you realize, well, wait, what I've just experienced is what Jesus experienced, mm-hmm. and suddenly those those passages take on all new meaning. Yeah, no question about it. And then, of course, you get up on Mount Carmel, or Carmel, and uh, you know this is the place where Elijah had his standoff uh, with the 400 prophets of Baal, and uh, I guess there were another 400 prophets somewhere around there that all of them, following Jezebel and Ahab, the most wicked folk, uh, we, we actually had a president and his wife that were very much like uh, Ahab and Jezebel. Uh, <laughs> hate to put it that way, but it is true. Uh, but in any event, they were up there, and uh, Elijah had his moment of truth in the Valley of Decision with them, and it wasn't a pretty picture, was it? It was not. Uh, but it is, it's it's one of the great spots uh, in terms of recognizing one person with God on their side uh, is, is greater than uh, whatever the size of the mob is that they're facing. Uh, in his case, 850 to 1. Uh, but Elijah saw God's power, and uh, th- that's also one of those great spots where you look down and realize there's the Jezreel Valley. There's, yes. there's Nazareth over there, and there's uh, Mount Tabor. You, you can trace Bible history from that one spot and then recognize what one man did on that spot, and it does give you goosebumps standing up there. Well, it gives you goosebumps because the Bible tells us about the Valley of Jezreel uh, from the hill of Megiddo, Har Megiddo, uh, commonly referred to in the book of Revelation as Armageddon. And uh, when you look down there, you realize this is a place where some of the major battles of history were fought. And the ultimate battle of history is going to be fought there to conclude the matter. Yeah, you know, and, and the country's so mountainous. And then you look at this vast valley and you say, this is the perfect place for the gathering of nations. Mm-hmm. This is where uh, the Antichrist and the false prophet are going to bring the nations together. And uh, you, you, you see it and go, wow, it just makes perfect sense. But are you yeah, aware? You know, uh, go ahead, Charlie. Well, oh, I was just going to say, how many times Megiddo in the past has been that, that uh, battleground and to recognize that Revelation comes along and says and it has one more event there. Well, unfortunately, Josiah, 
one of the greatest uh, revivalists of the Bible, uh, the the king of uh, uh, Judah who met, I believe it was the king of Egypt there in the Valley of Megiddo, Jezreel Valley, and unfortunately Josiah lost his life, but he had done uh, miracles in uh, turning uh, Judah and Israel back to God. Uh, you wonder why he would have lost his life there, but perhaps he extended uh, his own power beyond uh, the scope of his privilege uh, allowed by God. Yeah, in fact, I, I, I find it amazing, you know, the, the, the Egyptians were already past Judah, uh, and, and uh, he could have just let them go up to fight the Babylonians, but instead he mustered what little army he had, marched north to try and choke, choke them off, block them at uh, Megiddo, and yeah, with a great revival he was doing was cut short because of that. I don't think we have a, a better picture of what revival looks like for the mind and heart of God than that portrayed in the life of Josiah. It is amazing mm-hmm. what he did. It truly is. And uh, and Jeremiah was part of that re- revival, which I find fascinating. The young young prophet Jeremiah was, uh, was right alongside Josiah calling the people to repentance and uh, they were listening all the way up until Josiah died, and then they decided they maybe should kill Jeremiah as well. Yeah, uh, that's why Jesus there, uh, just before his crucifixion, overlooked Jerusalem and wept, and he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets, how I would have gathered you like a hen would gather its chicklets under its wings, but you would not. Uh, I don't think there's any greater pathos expressed from the mind and heart of Jesus, other than when he met Lazarus and wept, than what he experienced there, crying and weeping over Jerusalem. Well, I think you're right. You know, there's two words for weeping in the New Testament, and he, he shed tears over Lazarus, uh, but he, he, he wept. It's the strongest word for weeping when he was on the Mount of Olives looking down at Jerusalem, because his heart was there, and yet he knew what was going to happen. And it just uh, caused his emotions to swell up within him and uh, bleed down his cheeks in those tears. I remember when we were there in uh, Israel and uh, in the north, I was speaking, I believe it was Capernaum. Uh, There is a uh, there's a like a grotto set up in a cliff. Uh, There's and and it makes a great podium. <laughs> and I was speaking up there, and uh, lo and behold, as I was speaking to our group, uh, I heard my voice, my, my name being called out uh, from others who were surrounding. Come to find out, they were people from the U.S. that knew me, and uh, it was it was kind of a shocking experience. But I, I believe that the apostle, maybe the apostle P, uh, Paul, actually spoke from that very grotto. Mm. It, it it does give you uh, chills when you think about those places, doesn't it? It does. And then you go down to uh, Caesarea, and uh, you see what the Romans did there, and the and the uh, amphitheater there. Uh, all of these things they're they're in the Bible, and you get to see them in real time. Uh, it's pretty astounding. You know, it is. In fact, you mentioned Caesarea. I love it. Uh, here's this great Roman city, and, and the ruins are amazing. Uh, Paul comes through that town, and I'm sure he barely made it into the uh, a footnote in the daily journal of you know, what was going on. And yet 2,000 years later, this great city's in ruins. 
the, the Christianity that Paul was proclaiming has, has gone around the world. And it reminds us that the, the best man can do just fades when it compares to what God is doing. You know, one of the uh, the cities that gets its name uh, splashed across the pages of Scripture early on is Jericho. It's one of the oldest cities in the world, and uh, uh, we we read about how Joshua fought the Battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. But uh, we're told that Jericho would uh, be destroyed in the firstborn uh, of uh, some king there, and then all of a sudden we find Jericho still exists. How do you explain all that? Well, I think what uh, Joshua predicted there about the, uh, the foundation being laid and then the, the bars being laid by the death of the other son mm-hmm. uh, were done, and, and the king of Israel who came along actually sacrificed his children uh, to the, the pagan gods in the rebuilding of Jericho. So uh, it was a city that should not have been built again, but it was. And, and uh, then it was around in the time of Jesus, and it's almost as if Jesus brings it a, a spiritual dimension you know, with Zacchaeus and with uh, mm-hmm. blind Bartimaeus, right? Uh, that uh, he, he's able to redeem something, no matter how far gone it is. And Jericho was certainly one of those cities that was far gone. You didn't happen to see the little the the tree that Zach, uh, Zacchaeus climbed, did you? <laughs> I, I saw the one they point out, and uh, that's truly a miracle of God. If that's the right one, yeah, that's absolutely right. <laughs> So was Jesus buried in the Garden of Gethsemane? Uh, my heart tells me I, that's where it ought to be. My, my <laughs> head tells me it's probably the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Really? Uh, because Christians were going there within 100 years after his death. Hadrian saw these Christians go into that spot, uh-huh. built the temple to uh, Venus or Aphrodite there. But uh, we want to see a tomb, and there's a tomb at the Garden Tomb. And we want to yeah. see a, a skull hill, and we want a garden Golgotha, uh, we, we want to see that, say, right? That's right. And then, and then when they say, you know, we don't worship the place, we worship the Son of God who died for our sins there and then rose from the dead. Mm-hmm. You know, that's everything we want to hear. And, and so our heart goes, yes, this has got to be it. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I don't. I, I never try and talk people out of it. I tell them that's what I want it to look like. Of course, when you look at that uh, cliff overlooking the, uh, uh, just above the bus depot or whatever it is there. Uh, you look at it, and you can see why it would be called a place of the skull. Yeah, and, and it was in the 1800s that the uh, 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 Sir uh, Charles Gordon spotted that. Uh, in fact, one of my favorite stories, uh, Dwight uh, Moody mm-hmm. uh, was there early on, and uh, they, they preached a uh, Easter Sunday sermon uh, there and stood up on one of those Muslim graves on top mm-hmm. uh, to preach to the crowd. <laughs> Almost caused a riot. I'll bet they did. Uh, speaking of graves, uh, perhaps we should spend some time talking about the Mount of Olives with 150,000 Jewish graves uh, there. And there's some other aspects to that. But what should people get from your book? What do you what do you want well, them to get from your book other than just information? Well, yeah, I, I want them to hopefully visualize the places more than they, they do. I, growing up, you know, I, I put my own pictures in my mind based mm-hmm. on the Susquehanna River in northeastern Pennsylvania. And uh, when, I, when I actually saw the places, it, it changed my understanding of the Bible. And I hope they get that. But more than that, I hope that they, they read the, the biblical passages in there and recognize that every one of those sites has something to teach us about how we live today and uh, the impact that it can make on our life on a day-to-day basis. 
So is Jesus, Yeshua, really going to come back and uh, uh, stand on the Mount of Olives and have it split wide open? Uh, that's what Zechariah says. And I like to tell people, yeah, you're going to get a before and after picture if you're there early. You'll be able to tell people later on, saying, I saw it when it was just one mountain, not two. Yeah, really. And, uh, of course, you've got all those graves uh, there on the slopes of the Mount of Olives, and then you've got the eastern gate of Jerusalem that is blocked over, blocked up. What's that all about? Yeah, well, and uh, it's, it's interesting. Two things. They, you know, we know in Ezekiel that uh, when the Messiah comes into Jerusalem, they're going to block up the eastern gate. But I think it's a eastern, a different eastern gate to a new temple. But uh, the Muslims uh, like to point that out, and then uh, certainly they blocked it up because it was leading into the uh, El Aqsa Mosque area, and they thought that was crazy. Yeah. Well. We're going to talk more about all this, friends. There's so much. The book is Experiencing the the Land of the Book. $22 will put it in your hands. It's on our website, saveus.org. We'll be right back. There is so much more about Chuck Chris Meyer and Save America Ministries on our website, saveus.org. For example, under the marriage section, God has marriage on his mind. Chuck has some great resources to strengthen your marriage. First off, a fact sheet on the state of the marital union, a fact sheet on the state of ministry, marriage, and morals. SaveUS.org. Marriage, divorce, and remarriage. What does the Bible really teach about this? Find all of this at SaveUS.org. Also, a letter to pastors, the Hosea Project, SaveUS.org, and many more resources to strengthen your marriage. It's all on Chuck's website, saveus.org. Again, you can listen to Chuck's Viewpoint broadcast live and archive. Save America Ministries website at saveus.org. What a delight it is to talk about the what we call the Holy Land. It's the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the land that God gave as an eternal leasehold to them and to their descendants uh, as a, shall we say, a uh, precursor to the ultimate uh, land of promise that those of us who follow Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior are ultimately promised. But until then, we have the land of promise called Israel. And uh It was named, actually, after the grandson of Abraham, whose name was Jacob, and his name was changed to Israel. So that gives us a little further information there. Now, I remember, Charlie, that uh, they said we were going to go to the Elah Valley, and I said, oh, good. And so here's this 15-year-old punk kid. He shows up there. Uh, on the edge of the Elah Valley, and he's bringing some cheese and some bread to his brothers who are in the army, and all the armies of Israel are gathered on one side of this valley, and all the armies of the Philistines are on the other side, and the Philistines send down into the bottom of this valley a a nine-and-a-half-foot giant called Goliath. And he's taunting the children of Israel day after day after day. The Bible says he did it for 40 days. That's the number of testing, I think. And so he, he does that for 40 days, and this fellow David shows up. And uh, he hears what this giant has been saying for 40 days 
to the valiant men of Israel, including their king Saul, who stood head and shoulders above all the people. And David responds and he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Well, when the leaders of Israel heard that, they took him immediately to Saul and fitted him out with Saul's armor. What happened from there, Charlie? Well, I love it. Uh, you got David had to be shorter than Saul because he said, you know, the armor didn't fit. And, and very kindly, I think, saying to the king, I haven't tested it. I haven't tested it. It's 22 sizes too big. Well, that's why we're supposed to test the Word of God by memorizing, meditating, and uh, uh, studying it urgently, aren't we? Oh, we are. You know, and David did exactly also what we're supposed to do. He, he then took that off and, and basically armed himself with the things he had already practiced with and was familiar with. And uh, they may not have looked like much to the, uh, the Philistines. You know, when he went down and picked up those five smooth stones and his shepherd's crook and his, uh, his sling. Uh, but that's all it took for David, and he only needed one of those five stones. Uh, and, and I love it. You know, Saul looked at everybody and said, I'm bigger than you, I'm better than you. And suddenly he sees Goliath and says, he's bigger than me. He's than me. <laughs> and, and David says, from God's viewpoint, yeah, who is yeah. this uncircumcised <laughs> Philistine that he should yeah. defy the armies of the living God? Yeah, you're bigger than me, so what? God's bigger than you. And he's the one who's going to give us the battle. Oh, boy. I, I loved being there. And I could hear David's words. Uh, they just inspired me so much as I shared them with uh, the people that we were with. And I'm sure you do the same thing when you're there. I, in fact, I, 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 I get... Uh, beside myself almost uh with the with the uh just I hold the bible in one hand we start pointing out the mountains uh-huh. and telling the story and and the bible tells the story you just have to read the bible and let the people use their imagination to, to populate the hills with the philistines and the israelites and you come away saying man david had the heart and that's what the god saw in him that he didn't see in saul one of the greatest miracles that we know where god actually moved the sun, or the moon, uh, was in a place called the Valley of Agilon. Uh You call it the front door to Jerusalem, and there was a great battle there. And uh, uh, the arms of Moses had to be held up by uh, Aaron, I think, and one of the brethren there, while Joshua was down there fighting the Battle of Jericho, so to speak, in Agilon. And... Uh, the, the story is fascinating because depending upon what was happening with Moses' arms, the battle went one way or the other. Tell us about it. Yeah, well, in fact, uh, the, the Moses' battle took place in the wilderness. Uh, but you're exactly right. When, when Moses, when his arms were held up, uh, God gave victory. And when his arms got tired and went down, uh, the enemy seemed to gain the uh, the strength. And, uh, and it was Joshua, uh, I mean, her and uh, that held up those arms to keep, keep the battle going. Uh, in the Agilon Valley, it was Joshua who was fighting. Right. I love it because that's the one spot where he says, uh, sun stands still over Gibeon. You know, the, Gibeon was behind him and the sun was coming up. Right. And moon stands still in the valley of Agilon. And God does this incredible miracle of, of literally stopping the sun and the moon while Joshua chased the uh, Canaanites down that valley. Uh, and then, lest we get too, too high on Joshua, it's interesting, it says, God also sent a thunderstorm and hailstones and more people died from the hailstones that were killed by Joshua. So 
as amazing as it was, Joshua had to look at it and go, wow, the sun and the moon stand still, yeah. and God sends down giant missiles to kill the enemy. I better keep following this God. He's, he's pretty good. Well, we have another account in the Scripture where God is going to send down those missiles. Again, we read about it in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Mm-hmm. That's uh, the, the Battle of Gog and Magog. Isn't it amazing? He destroys all the buildings first. You know, the earthquake wipes everything out. And then he sends down these massive uh, hailstones. And I used to, to read that and say, I believe it, but uh, I don't know. And then I lived for about 20 years in Texas. And uh, a couple times they had some major thunderstorms with hailstorms. You see row after row of cars, and it looks like someone took a ball-peen hammer and just beat the, the, the living daylights out of them. And I would not want to be outside and having those coming down at me. And God says that's what he's going to do at the Battle of Well, God he says that they're, they're going to weigh 100 talents. Uh, how, yeah. how much is a talent? Uh, if I remember right, it's about 60 pounds. Uh, so uh, six, uh, I think it's 60 pounds. So it's, it, these things are... Are, are uh, heavy missiles. They've actually never been recorded that size, but God can do it, and He will. Wow, it's it's just hard to imagine uh, something like that taking place. But God says it is going to take place, and He's going to destroy five sixths of those uh, collective armies uh, on the mountains of Israel. It's going to take them seven months to clean up the uh, seven years to clean up the uh, seven months to clean up the bodies, and seven years to. Yep. Uh, uh, use all of the armaments uh, for energy, uh, which tells us another thing about a seven-year period. Uh, by the way, did you know, uh, on a different vein, Charlie, that uh, the World Economic Forum has declared that uh, the New World Order will have been fully established by 2030? Just yesterday, in their meeting in Davos, Switzerland, a leader got up and said, this is something that has to be done immediately. We cannot wait any longer. We must expedite the process. So uh, this is where we are even at this very moment. And when you think about Jesus perhaps having uh, died and been resurrected in 30 A.D., how many years is it from 30 A.D. to 2030? Yeah. Exactly 2,000. Right. Wow. That's two days from God's viewpoint. It's just a, a fascinating piece of information. We're not going to preach a sermon on it, but <laughs> there are some things that are extremely fascinating. We might uh, pay some attention to it. I wrote a book uh, several years ago called King of the Mountain, the Eternal Epic and End Time Battle for He Who Rules the Temple Mount Rules the World. And uh, what the Lord revealed to me was that the trajectory of history from creation, in fact, even before creation, when Satan uh, uh, rebelled against God in the mount of God on the stones of fire in the heavens, uh, from that time forward, uh, he had decreed that he was going to rule and reign on the earth and that he would uh, ascend to the heights of the north. He would be like the Most High God. So the whole trajectory of history from that time is the effort of the peoples and the nations uh, to uh, rule and reign from the most priceless 37 acres called the Temple Mount. It's an amazing story. Uh, maybe we can spend a little more time talking about that Temple Mount. What would you say initially okay. before the next break? Well, I would say that that's the, uh, the, the heart of the matter. You know, If there's a bullseye over Israel, the center of the bullseye is the Temple Mount. Uh, and uh, who controls it and whose God is in charge 
is really the big issue that has never been settled, even when they talk about peace. Uh, that's going to be the stumbling block for everyone. An article came out, uh, I believe it was in the Jerusalem Post, it might have been Israel National News, uh, several years ago, uh, that uh, the ruler ruling party in Israel had basically sold uh, the Temple Mount to the Vatican. Hmm. And I've never seen that. that in, article. in fact, wow. had given had given the Vatican control over the uh, the historic place of the Last Supper, right there on Mount Zion. Oh, yeah. And uh, numerous other sites, and uh, the the article actually goes so far as to say that essentially uh, the Israel had sold uh, the all of these sites and their control to to the papacy. Mm. Well, I do know from the upper room, and that's one of those where the uh, the ultra orthodox Jews get upset because the traditional upper room is right over the traditional tomb of David. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can't get two groups more more uh, opposite uh, than than that. Well, if the uh, if the Pope can de- declare that he's reigning and ruling from uh, just above the throne of David, where uh, the Scripture says that Christ Himself would rule and reign, and yet He also is given control over the uh, uh, the room of the Last Supper, the only thing left is. Uh, uh, ruling and reigning from the temple. Yeah, it's. Uh, I'll tell you, things are, are falling into place rapidly. Is there going to be another temple? Uh, I, actually, I believe the Bible says there'll be two more. But uh, we do know that one's going to be built before Jesus comes back, and then one uh, in the you know, the kingdom era when he finally does return. Yeah. Well, that's my belief. Uh, some in Israel are saying, "Well, we have to build the temple before." Before the Messiah comes, others say no. We have to wait for the Messiah to build the temple. So there's, you know, there's no agreement there in Israel uh, on on hardly anything anymore, is there? <laughs> there is not. Two Jews, three opinions. Sounds almost like uh, Washington D.C. The book, friends, experiencing yes, the land of the book. Fascinating book. $22. We'll put this $25 book in your hands. It's on our website, saveus.org. Call us 1 800 Save USA or write to us. We'll be right back. Have you ever considered what the early church was like? Many people are developing a hard longing for a greater fulfillment in our practices as Christians. A recent study showed 53,000 people a week are leaving the back door of America's churches in frustration. What is going on? Why has there not been even a 1% gain among followers of Christ in the last 25 years? Could it be that God is seeking to restore first century Christianity for the 21st century? Jesus said, I'll build my church. Is Christ by his spirit stirring to prepare the church for the 21st century? The early church prayed together and broke bread from house to house. They were family, and it was said by all who observed, behold how they love one another. Incredible. But the same can be found right now. Go to saveus.org and click Sell Church. We can revive first century Christianity for the 21st century. It's about people, not programs. It's about a body, not a building. That's saveus.org. Click Sell Church. Welcome back to Viewpoint. Charles Dyer joining us here today on Viewpoint with his book, Experiencing the Land of the Book. He's been there over a 100 times. 
He's provided this uh, wonderful, wonderful uh, book that will enable you to take your journey through the promised land uh, with so many different insights from someone who has actually done his studies uh, there and about Israel and uh, the scriptures as well. So uh, I hope you'll avail yourself of it if you've never been to Israel or don't think you're going to get there. Now, I have a question, Charlie. The Bible tells us that Jesus spoke on one occasion to 5,000 men plus women and children. They had no amplification. They had no electricity. How in the world did they hear him? Have you spoken from that place? Uh, I know where the place is. Um, I do not have the voice capacity, but I think what we do know, uh, there have been people who, uh, from Dwight Moody uh, back to the uh, the uh, Wesleys and others, that could preach to thousands without amplification. Well, George Whitfield uh, was it, said to be the, the, the heavy hitter in that regard. Yeah. Uh, well, and I think what happened in, in Jesus' case, he's speaking, and, it's, and some of those hillsides are natural amphitheaters. Yes. Uh, so as he spoke down below, the crowd is up above. I think they were better at listening than than people are today with our you know cell phones and everything else we have. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he spoke, I think, with a clear, booming voice. But on that natural hillside, those people were paying attention to what he said. And I think they could all hear, hear the message that he was giving. It's amazing, isn't it? Today, we can have amplification and still can't hear, or won't. Yeah. <laughs> I think a lot of it is we choose not to sometimes, isn't it? <laughs> we're we're sliding some uh, some little messages in here and there, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, well, Jesus kept on about having ears to hear and, and hearing not. And, uh, right. Uh, that's that's for our day as well. One of uh, the favorite sites is uh, the Mount of Beatitudes. Uh, is do you think that's the legitimate spot overlooking the Sea of Galilee? You know what I do there is I say. It, it, are we on the exact spot? Well, we can't say that for sure, but we do know uh, it was somewhere in Galilee. It was one of the mountains, so we're on you know, one of the nearby mountains or that one. But the other piece it says is when he leaves the Mount of Beatitudes, the next place he shows up is Capernaum. Mm-hmm. And when you're standing there, you look down the hill, well, Capernaum is just one mile away, right at the bottom of that hill. Well, that would make sense, so then. I, I say, yeah, that's it. it. It makes the best sense of any place around. Plus, early tradition kept going back there. But it does seem to fit geographically. But I tell people I'm not going to you know, start a new church over whether this is the exact hill or not. But it sure makes good sense. Well, uh, now, of all of the places we've talked about, these are some of the uh, the prominent, most prominent places. But is there something that we have have not talked about, Charlie, that really uh, holds a special place in your mind and heart? There are actually two of them. Uh, my, my favorite place of all is the Judean wilderness, which mm-hmm. takes people by surprise. But you know, the wilderness doesn't change, and yet in well, the that Bible, must be because you're sort of a John the Baptist type. You know, I, maybe it is, but, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, but it's it's funny because you, you get out there and you go, uh, "This is the place where God has has Israel, and for forty years says, take care, you know, trust me, I'll take care of you.'" Mm. Uh, David went through the wilderness. Jesus spent forty days in the wilderness being tested. Uh, it's the place of testing and the place where God shows that he's faithful. Mm-hmm. And then my other place is is the Sea of Galilee. Yeah. And and I think what I love about it the most, especially when you get on a, a boat out in the middle of it, and you recognize this is exactly what it looked like when Jesus was there. They they can't build a church, or at least haven't yet built a church out on the water. Right. So uh, it looks the way it's supposed to look. You didn't try and, to uh, ride in Peter's boat, did you? 
not that one that's uh, on the on the uh, shore side there. Yeah, it's it's uh, really a holy boat, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It wouldn't it wouldn't float too long. <laughs> I've been out one time on one of the larger boats when a, when a storm came up, uh-huh. and that was uh, that was uh, scary. It's amazing how fast it came up. Yeah. And in fact, the captain stopped the, the meeting we were doing and headed back to shore, and the, the waves were coming over the front of the boat. And that's a pretty big sized boat with a with a good diesel motor in it. Uh-huh. And uh, all we were a group of pastors, and all the pastors were up front yelling, "Peace, be still!" Yeah, right. And they weren't Jesus. <laughs> they didn't do a bit of good. I'll bet not one of them walked on the water, though. <laughs> they did not, but they they did land on shore wet. All right, let's talk about uh, Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus, it says, went, he, he set his face to go up to Jerusalem. And then, of course, we get uh, a whole series of chapters in the Gospels about what he did, where he went, the healing that took place, the miracles uh, that took place, and the parables that he taught on the way up to Jerusalem uh, before his crucifixion. So, first of all, Tell uh, our listeners why the Bible always talks about going up to Jerusalem. Yeah, you know, it's it's not the highest place in the land. Mount Hermon is, mm-hmm. but wherever you are in the land, as you're heading toward Jerusalem, you're heading uphill. Well, uh, the Mount of Olives is, is, is even taller than Jerusalem. And the Mount, uh, it yeah. is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. You look down on Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, but uh, coming from Jericho up toward Jerusalem, that's an uphill climb, and... Coming from uh, the airport the other direction, you're coming uphill. That those little buses used to chug up up that hill, and and just as a result, because I think it was coming to the house of God, but also geographically because uh, Jerusalem's up in the hills at a pretty good elevation. Yeah, uh, the Bible just did refer to it as heading up to Jerusalem or going down from Jerusalem. Everything from Jerusalem was down, even if it was up. Uh, yeah, <laughs> generally down. Though every so often those hills. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I, I tell people, I just, I just had a knee replacement, and I'm getting ready to head to Israel in March. And uh, the one thing I do know is I'm going to be heading uphill and downhill. I better get this D in shape. You better. Because uh, you, you, don't, you don't walk on the level when you're in the land. You yeah, and by the way, uh, you might want to avert going up Masada. <laughs> uh, I, I, will, I will go up, but I'll go up by the, the cable car. Okay, okay. Uh, just wants to just walk warning. Up, I'll meet him on top. I'm caring yep. for you. Uh, <laughs> all right. Now let's go back to Jerusalem, because uh, Jerusalem was was always in the mind and heart of Jesus, yet he spent uh, most of his ministry in Galilee, the Galilean area, which was despised by the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, uh, just like they said, can anything good come out of Nazareth uh, to them? The Galilee was like uh, like a ghetto, as far as they were, a spiritual ghetto. So uh, why did Jesus spend so much time there? Well, and I think because he, under, well, he understood that as God, Isaiah 9. Uh, when Isaiah made that prediction of, uh, you know, unto us a son is born, unto us a child is given, mm-hmm. just before he says that, he mentions uh, the darkness in Galilee, Galilee of the Gentiles. And he says, in that dark place, a light will shine. He mentions it being in the connection with the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you put those on the map, you're, you're at Nazareth to the Sea of Galilee. So 700 years before Jesus came, God said, my light is going to shine in that area, Galilee of the Gentiles, uh, Nazareth to the Sea of Galilee. 
And I think Jesus went there because that's exactly where God said the light would shine. It reminds me, I, I tell people, never despise small things. Exactly. You know, we always think if something's bigger, it's better. And I think that was the uh, mentality of the religious leaders in his day, too. You know, we got the temple. What do they have? Well, they have the prophecy of Isaiah and God's son. Mm. And that trumped the, even the temple in Jerusalem. They also had Yeshua, Jesus, who was greater than the temple. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he was the amazing. walking that's temple. So, he was. And uh, that's, that's when God said his light was going to shine. Jesus was that light. All right, so Jesus gets to Jerusalem, and uh, the first thing he does coming down from the Mount of Olives uh, on a donkey is he goes into the temple and turns over the tables of the money changers and said, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. What was that all about? Well, indeed, that's what they had done. In fact, it's interesting, he starts his ministry... uh, creating a stir in the temple, getting rid of some of the uh, events going on, and then ends his ministry the final week there that way. Uh, the Pharisees the Sadducees had made that their power base. Uh, they had brought the animal sacrifices into the temple to sell them. They were you know, changing the, uh, the coinage there. Uh, and Jesus is, is saying, you've made it a den of thieves. You've, your, your desire to get uh, rich over the people coming has polluted this place. And... Uh, uh, so I think he's identifying with God's purpose for the building and his plan, and uh, definitely pointing the finger at those religious leaders saying, you have, you've, twi- you've twisted and perverted everything that God intended this place to be. Well, they elevated tradition over truth, power, perks, and position over truth. And that's why they killed Jesus. Even Pontius Pilate, a secular, crusty Roman governor, saw through it all, and he said it was but for envy that they brought him. So Jesus weeps over Jerusalem and uh, cries that, you know, I, I would have gathered you like a chicken gathers its uh, chicklets under its arms, but you would not. And uh, so then we find one of the most fascinating passages of Scripture in Revelation chapter 11. Here are the two great witnesses of the end times uh, that are prophesying and warning the world The world hates their living guts and seeks to kill them, but God will protect them for three and a half years, and then he will remove his protective hand, and it says they will be killed, and their bodies, here's what I want to focus on, Revelation 11, 8, their bodies shall lie in the street, singular, of that city, spiritually, singular, which is both spiritually Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. One day, about 35 years ago, I was reading, and I came to that verse, and I said, Lord, this is mysterious. This is beyond, beyond. I can't go further until you reveal it to me. And out of that came a book called Out of Egypt. Out of Egypt. And here is God likening Jerusalem to Egypt and Sodom. And where the Lord was crucified. What do you make of all that, Charles? Well, I think he's showing spiritually, uh, especially in the day that these prophets are going to be prophesying there, uh, Jerusalem is going to be a spiritual wasteland. Uh, But he wants to make sure that we know it's it's literal Jerusalem, and that's why he says it's the place where Jesus was crucified, but it has gone a far, (laughs) far afield from what it was and what God intended. Uh, And sadly, when you go to Jerusalem today, uh, I've been there when they had the gay pride parade. Oh, 
and you, you see some of the things that go on, you say, that's, that's a far cry from what God ever intended this place to be. Such an abomination. Such an abomination mm-hmm. to celebrate that which God says he hates. Well, we're in a similar kind of place today. In America, uh, as it is in Israel, so it is in America. We were a nation that experienced a kind of uh, covenant birth uh by the inspiration of the Lord back in the early 1600s, and uh, it didn't take long for us to gradually begin to abandon that calling and that covenant. And look at us today. We're no better than Israel, in fact, maybe worse. Yeah, that's and it's sad. But that's, uh, and, and thankfully, there's the graciousness of God. Uh, he still gives us the opportunity. We don't know how long we have, but uh, right. we need to take the opportunity while we have it. Well, the theme that uh, we bring forth and have for 27 years on this program is people get ready. Jesus is coming. Soon we're going to be coming home. Do you believe that? I do, with all my heart. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, your final word. I'm going to give you a final word here, Charlie. Uh, My final word to people is if you get a chance to go to Israel, go. You'll never be the same, and you'll never read your Bible the same way. And uh, if you don't get a chance, keep reading your Bible. Uh, You don't have to go to Israel, but you do need to know the Word of God. That's Mm -hmm. the most important thing that people can know. Exactly, exactly. And to help them along to get their act in order and toward to understand some of those things, it doesn't hurt to get a copy of your book, does it? Well, I I think it'll help them, but uh, I'm not here to promote that. I'm here to talk about Israel because I love it. Exactly. That's exactly what, uh, what I do. I write a book, and it gives me an opportunity to speak to a larger group of people through radio and television. It's a wonderful thing. Charlie, thanks so much for joining us here on Viewpoint. It's good to have somebody with my my namesake uh, joining us so we can have such a good time talking about uh, the Word of God, the, the, the land of promise, and uh, we need to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, but we also need to pray for... Uh, As Jesus said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how about uh, repenting in these evil days? Thank you so much, Charles. God bless. Be a blessing. And friends, get a copy of the book, Experiencing the Land of the Book, A Life-Changing Journey Through Israel. $22. We'll put the $25 book in your hands on our website, saveus.org. I hope you will become a partner with us. Don't delay, friends. Time is short. It really is. You have no idea how short it really is. Come on board. Help us to get the message out until Jesus comes. You've been listening to Viewpoint with Chuck Chrismeyer. Viewpoint is supported by the faithful gifts of our listeners. Let me urge you to become a partner with Chuck as a voice to the church declaring vision for the nation. Join us again next time on Viewpoint as we confront the issues of America's heart and home.